Welcome, everyone, to the Grow People podcast. That would be Pastor Jason Curtis. 14 years here at Revolution Church. In January. Yep. And then next year, the church celebrates its 20th anniversary. 20. Big doings coming up next August. (laughs) Big doings. Big doings. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. Yeah, thank you. Is that a Philly phrase? or No, absolutely not. Okay, I didn't think so. Maybe that's why I like it. Yeah, I think it's a Southern thing. Okay. Okay. I'm down. I'm David Stein, campus pastor at our Canton location. The purpose of the Grow People podcast is to help grow people. <laughs> this is episode 51. 51. Hard to believe. Uh the, Row the hill. The last episode of the GPP, uh, episode 50, which was our dive into historical and spiritual Israel, was the most listened to and watched podcast so what? far. Yes. How do you make like what? what? <laughs> uh by by thousands. Yeah. Um, and we just want to thank people. Uh, thank you to the many, many people, scores of people that reached out to us via text, via email. Yeah. Uh, coming up to us at church. Mm-hmm. I had people coming up to me at Publix, um, restaurants, the Kroger's. The Kroger's. Yeah. And and saying how, how much they not only enjoyed listening to the podcast, but how eye-opening it was. Yeah. And look, we found it eye-opening too yeah. in, in our research of, of all of this, but uh, especially the people, and I just want to thank those who came up to me and said, hey, the, the part about anti-Semitism yeah. really spoke to them. Mm-hmm. They had no idea that these things happened yeah. or are still happening, Still, and we can see that in our country today. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, historical Israel, spiritual Israel. Uh, but one correspondence came. One, <laughs> one, one thank you. One thank you came in via the Pony Express. Uh, so we want to read this to you. Uh, it's a handwritten card. Came in this week. David and Jason, thank you for the awesome podcast, episode 50. It was a history of the Holy Land, past and present. Thank you for the time you spent in preparation and presentation. Excellent, uh, with an exclamation point and a heart. And that comes in from... Ain't Cindy. Ain't Cindy. Ain't Cindy. Leanna's aunt from Malone, Florida. And Malone, Florida is where Leanna's family has had a farm there for, I think it was Franklin Pierce. Was, almost as long as Israel. Almost as yeah, long yeah. as Israel. <laughs> the land of Malone, Florida. It, yeah. um, I think it was Franklin Pierce that deeded the land to her family. Wow. So I don't know what year that was. and But it's been a long time. And Aunt Cindy lives on the farm. Uh, she is one of four siblings. Mm. So, uh, Leanna's mom, her sister, mm. and she listens to every podcast. She watches every message. Mm. That's uh, cool. Many times live on Sunday. Yeah. So, uh, really appreciate you. Love you, Aunt Cindy, and I will see you next week. Yes, thank you. The best part about that was the other night at our giving dinners. You had gotten that, and you called Leanna and I over to come read it and you pulled it out and you were holding it like way down here, like below you and started reading it. <laughs> I was like, what makes you think that we could read that down there? But you were like holding it away, you know, doing the, the let your eye adjust thing, you know? Well, I didn't have my reading glasses. Yeah. <clears throat> have we talked about on the podcast how my eyesight came back when I got COVID? Yeah. Well, okay. I don't know if we have on the podcast. Okay. We've talked about yeah, it. Yeah. So the day after I got COVID back in 2021, my eyesight came, my vision 
my far nearsighted, my nearsightedness yeah. returned to 2020 vision. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, I still need readers. Yeah. So that that was why I was holding that holding it so low. that note so low. But it was funny <laughs> at my expense, it which was. is which is quite fine. Yeah. So your thoughts since we recorded the last podcast and the events that have happened since then in Israel, in our country comments that people have made yeah it it was a uh very like you said a lot of people that came up to us and have talked to us about it and because i do think it is a subject matter that obviously um is very important and you know there's wars and stuff that go on all the time whether it's like in ukraine you know in russia but i was telling somebody at one of our giver dinners like when we see those wars we don't think of the Bible, you know, we just think well, that's a war that's going on. Mm-hmm. But when it's Israel, it hits different, sure. you know, because of the biblical um, references and the nature of the land and those things. So there was definitely a lot of questions, a lot of intrigue, a lot of misconceptions, not only from uh, universities in our world, mm-hmm. That, you know, again, just have such a short-sighted view of history. Um, but there's so many people in the church that just don't know. Right. And again, not because the, they don't want to know. They just, um, they don't know how to think about it. And so it was one of those ones that, again, we had talked about it so much. And that's really the one, of, again, the purpose of the, this podcast, the the GPP, the GPP, we have referred to like that. I like that. <laughs> the kids calling it. That's so what the kids yeah. calling it. Um, yeah, is to help grow people and and to address things and deal with things that we may not necessarily have time to get to on a weekend. And the last podcast, not only was the most listened to, it was the longest we've ever done. It was. Uh, and so even today, uh, Keon, our producer, he was making coffee. I was like, "You getting ready for another long one?" Um, <laughs> Well, I think we did that last podcast in the immediacy of October 7th. Yeah, yeah. And and there were a lot of emotions, and we felt the need just because of the lack of information that people yeah. have to, to really lay out historically the right of the land of Israel yeah. uh, to the Jewish people. And then our response to what's going on yeah. as Christians. And then in the last couple of weeks, not that... Not that it became, and I'm, I want to, I want to say this in the yeah. right, in the right way. It was just a few weeks after Ukraine began that people started to not talk about Ukraine. Yeah. So kind of forgetting about that. Mm-hmm. Nobody's forgetting about Israel right now. There was a a huge march in Washington D.C. A pro-Israel. Yeah, yesterday. March yesterday, three hundred thousand people. He told me. Yeah. Uh, the largest gathering of Jewish people. In history of our yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. So, but what I have seen over the last couple of weeks is a shift to understanding why the Jewish people, why Israel has a right to defend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which in the initial stages, there were a lot of even Jewish American people who did not have that view. Yeah. They had the view of, well, if Israel hadn't done this to yeah. the people in Gaza, this would not have happened. Yeah. And- through education, not higher education, <laughs> through through education, more people are understanding Israel's right to defend their land. Yeah, again, because not only is there misconceptions, but there's definitely um, 
misunderstandings, you know, like people, um, maybe we're taught one thing and then as you start digging into it, just mm-hmm. again, just like the podcast, people are like, Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know the history of it. I didn't know, um, even you, like I didn't even know about anti-Semitism in mm-hmm. that, you know, and we've had that conversation a lot. Like, again, when I grew up, that wasn't the, the hostility that existed, like we talked about in Ephesians mm-hmm. 2, wasn't between Gentiles and Jewish people or Arabs and Jewish people. It was more localized here to America, you know, white and black. And so I think there is a lot of people that um, are intrigued by it, uh, not intrigued like in a good way, but like this is going on. So you're kind of forced to think mm-hmm. about it. And then you're, you have to kind of deal with, okay, how am I supposed to think about this? You know, and, and like we said, if you can't call out evil, that's one thing, you know, and there was sadly a lot of people that couldn't even call out the evil Mm -hmm. of the attacks, but then they so quickly rushed to judgment on the other side, just blaming Israel, you know, to where now I feel like people are starting to understand that, um, yeah, there is a, they have a right to defend themselves and and then what I've seen, what we've talked about, and what partly what we're going to talk about today is now it's almost, uh, particularly in the Christian perspective, not just a support for Israel um, in that role, but also because they know somehow, some way Israel is connected to prophecy. Right. And the future. And that's what we really want to get into today is is kind of part two of that yeah. conversation from mm-hmm. last week. We've talked about the history of things and, and just the history of the land, the history of the people, Palestinians, that whole idea, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. And then we talked about kind of the theological aspect of how national or historical Israel is a separate thing from spiritual Israel, which leads us naturally into this conversation this week about Israel and the role of prophecy. So episode 51, not area 51, episode 51. <laughs> but just as mysterious. <laughs> we, we, yeah. shi- we shift from the land to the prophecy. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a lot to cover, but we, we need to start with some context. Yeah. We need to start with some context. We need to start with how and why there are so many thoughts yeah. on prophecy, yeah. so many thoughts on Israel, where that comes from, and how we as believers can approach our views on Israel as it's laid out in scripture. So a little historical context. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to prophecy, you know, obviously I think everybody kind of understands when you're talking about prophecy or prophetic things, you're talking about the future. And so inherently you're talking about things that are unknown that God is making known. So I think we're all naturally intrigued by what is coming. And so there's kind of a natural built-in fascination uh, which is why there's a built-in fascination with the book of Revelation, because it's the only book in the Bible that is um, that we what people would look at as like yet to have happened. You know, it's like every other book was referring to what happened in the Old Testament with Israel, what happened in the with Jesus and the early church in those churches, and then there's the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. and so people like feel like we're in between the times of Jude, which is the book right before revelation and revelation. That's where we live, you know, cause they think in a kind of a linear timeline, mm-hmm. which I don't think is a correct way to think, but so it brings intrigue. And then particularly over the last 150 years or so, uh, in, in primarily the North American context, but 
all over the world as well, there was this kind of explosion of a new theological system that came on the scene um, called dispensationalism, which we'll get into, um, that really, for the first time, honestly, in Christian history or church history, brought a whole new spin on thinking about the end times and the book of Revelation and all these things. And so for the last hundred or so years, there's been this explosion of interest and really marketing. And I don't say that necessarily in a bad way, but you have things like the Left Behind series, the mm -hmm. movies, you have the book that was written, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth in the 60s or 70s by Hal Lindsey. Um, so you have all this um, prophetic things, and, and partly because the nation of Israel became a nation again. Um, in 1948. So this uh, dispensationalism really came on the scenes in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And then 40 years or so later, 50 years later, the nation of Israel becomes a nation again, or mm -hmm. the people become a nation again. And now there's this explosion of interest. Right, right. And every time you, and you drop this every once in a while, you're mentioning something about revelation you go okay someday we're going to go through the book of revelation there's always this murmur yeah in, yeah in the congregation like, <laughs> and, and some of it's like oh cool and someone's like oh i don't know about that yeah no Lindsay and i literally were going through chick-fil-a the other day we had a meeting with the county about some cool things that we're going to get to do with them next year that we'll talk more about the county schools and Lindsay and i were coming back after that and we stopped at chick-fil-a for lunch and in the line at chick-fil-a saw a, a girl whose family goes to our church and she's really smart. And literally, while we're sitting there talking to her, she's like, I want you to teach on the book of Revelation. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. Um, and referencing even the podcasts and stuff. Um, so, yeah, it is it is something that I we will do and I want to do, uh, Lord willing. But that kind of what we want to get into today, because there is a lot of different interpretations of that book. And again, the the prominent one in evangelicalism, um, which when we say evangelicalism, what we mean is really that kind of is like Christians across denominations, mm -hmm. if you think about it that way. And so evangelicals would be Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, people that believe, you know, the core teachings of our faith that, you know, Jesus rose again from the dead. He's the only way that would be a evangelical. And the vast majority or the majority report of the people, not not the scholarship, not in seminaries per se, but the people in churches hold a dispensational view. Um, and one of the things I want to say at the outset of this, because I've I've I feel like there's been times in my younger years where just during a sermon I've made a comment about it, mm -hmm. and I've done it in a way that honestly was was snarky and maybe a little arrogant. Because I've made like I made a comment one time, it was a whack theology, mm. and and while I may think that so, because <laughs> and by that I just mean it's weird, mm -hmm. you know. There's some weird things to it, which we'll get into. But I want to recognize, and this is part of the historical part, that there are a lot of sincere, amazing Bible believing Christians that love Jesus, love His Word, and have come to the the conclusion of a dispensational framework for the end times because they see it as the biblical way, which again, we'll get into that as well. But I just want to say from the outset, as we talk about these things that 
we're really trying to do it from a humble position and recognize just like we did when we talked about predestination, you know, grace before faith or faith before grace, that there are, we can agree to disagree on this. Um, this is not a reason to be hostile to each other. Um, and so I want to try really hard and make sure we try hard to just represent the viewpoint uh, and then say what we believe about it or what we don't. But at the same time, recognize there are people in our church that love Jesus, that love the Bible, that would disagree. And that's okay. You know, we can agree to disagree on the viewpoints of this. Um, and so we want to recognize that from the outset. Mm-hmm. And that's good. And I, I'm going to speak as a steward of Revolution Church, not yeah. as a, a staff member. Uh, I appreciate sitting under a pastor that has that humility. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Again, I, in my younger years, I don't think I did, <laughs> or there's definitely at times, cause you know how it is when you're talking, sure. you get riled up. And oh yeah. You may Third. make a, you may <laughs> yeah. make an offhand comment that, yep. and then somebody seizes on that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to try to avoid. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to make a, I don't want to make anybody try to feel stupid or dumb mm-hmm. or anything like that. But here's why we, I want to get into this. The vast majority of people I have found, you have found that we've talked to within our church who believe in this viewpoint, let's just talk about the secret rapture of the church. Mm-hmm. They believe in it because that's what they've been taught, um, but they don't understand the full um, scope of it. Mm-hmm. They don't understand why. that. And once you get into all of that, then people realize, okay, I didn't know that part. And again, even going back to the historical part, you know, in the early 1900s, Christianity um, was facing a lot of attacks. Um, And I know we talked about this, like was facing a lot of attacks from what's called German higher criticism, which ironically enough um, is where also critical theory came out of is these German higher schools. Um, And then there's been a lot of conversations today about critical race theory, which is just critical theory applied to race. So critical race theory from critical theory from German higher criticism was happening in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where in scholarship of the Bible, the Bible was really under attack um, from a, from a um, universe, from a higher education point of view where people were starting to, because, you know, knowledge was increasing and we were, we had more tools and more historical things to look at. And so people were criticizing the Bible saying it's not inerrant, which means it has errors. And so that was kind of this attack from the, the, um, and when I say liberal, I don't mean liberal politically in the way we think of it today, but definitely liberal side of the church from a standpoint of the Bible is not the inherent word of God, you know? And so so people that um, were like, oh, yeah, well, the Bible contains errors. Well, German higher criticism really started just nailing mm-hmm. that. And so in response to that, Christians rightly felt the need to defend the Bible, Yeah, uh, which was good. And that's where the whole fundamentalist movement sure. came in mm-hmm. uh, in the early 1900s, which that just what happened was a lot of pastors and, and people uh, in seminaries and different places said, hey, we have to agree on the fundamentals. And and of those fundamentals, not only is Jesus the only way, but the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Mm-hmm. And so then that rose to the rise of fundamentalism. 
Well, as a part of that, there was a guy named Schofield who wrote a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. Which I have right here. Which David has. Right here. It's it's a very... It was given to me as a gift. If you're watching <laughs> on YouTube, this this is actually the 1984 version. It's not the 1909 version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it's big and heavy. Yeah. This is actually a loose leaf version. <laughs> So I, I don't know if I could take pages out and put them where I want them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't no. know if I can go Thomas Jefferson on it. Yeah. On it. it just means it'll bend better. Yeah. 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 Um, so as a part of that, again, was uh, was a guy by the name of Schofield who, in response to a lot of the criticism that the Bible was facing, published this work. And it's, a, it's the King James Version. And, and in that, he wrote a lot of commentary. A lot. Of, anytime you have a study Bible, you're going to have half the page is going to be notes on the text. That's what makes it so much bigger is because you got the Bible and then you got commentary on it. And one of his, um, one of his contributions to helping people kind of defend the Bible was we need to take the Bible literally. And which in some is true I mean, not some sense. It is true. We do need to take the Bible as the literal word of God because it is. But in response to that, he also then took a lot of prophecy, literally. Mm -hmm. And that's where, and he popularized this view of dispensationalism, which we'll get into the history of that, where was a certain viewpoint of the end times, particularly the role of Israel and the church and how those are two different things. And so, with the publication of that Bible, with the Bible feeling attacked from the outside, churches and Christians really started like kind of galvanizing around this Bible and this idea of fundamentalism, of which was a specific way to view the end times of eschatology or the book of Revelation. So the reason why we're getting into that is there's a lot of people today, when you disagree with them about eschatology or left behind or a dispensational viewpoint, they don't feel like you're just disagreeing with their theology. They feel like you're attacking the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to clarify. We are not attacking the Bible. No. Um, We believe the Bible is the literal word of God. Um, But that doesn't mean we interpret every book of the Bible because there's different genres. We interpret them literally and what that means is the book of Revelation is meant to be interpreted symbolically, which is what all prophecy is meant to be. Um, there are elements to prophecy that, yes, do speak to literal future events that are coming, but prophecy is way more. Biblical prophecy is way more about a, a pastoral way to try to get people to repent than it is about a prediction. Right. So the book of Revelation in and of itself was meant to be a, that's why it was written to the seven churches at the beginning and written to the leaders of those seven churches as a pastoral way to say to people about the future, but it was a way to do it symbolically to say, I'm calling you to repentance. Mm -hmm. I'm calling you to endure. That's what prophecy is. And so again, clarifying uh, or kind of summarizing this thought, what we want to say is when we talk about why we do not hold as a church a dispensational view, what we want you to hear us say 
you might have held that view because you taught that was the literal way to interpret the Bible. And if you don't interpret that, then you don't believe the Bible. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is that's not true. Right. There are, in fact, the vast majority of scholars and, and pastors and professors that study the Bible, that love Jesus, do not hold to a dispensational view because for the vast majority of church history, it didn't exist. It didn't come on the scene until the late 1800s. Yeah. So we've got 1880 years of church history, church history. Yeah. And then all of a sudden this comes on 150 years ago. Yeah. So what happened 150 years ago that led to the creation of this Bible and how, I don't want to say the word skew. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How has interpret interpret. Yeah. I love our RC Sproul, you know, one of your heroes in faith, faith, mine too. Um, He tells a great story about how he goes up to a famous pastor who's holding to this view, dispensationalism, holding to the view of a secret rapture and says, Hey, I I don't, I don't see that in here. Yeah. Can you point that out? And the guy said, I can't. No. And, and R.C. Sproul says, well, how do you, how do you preach this? He yeah. says, well, this is just what I've been taught since I was a kid. Exactly. Well, and that's where, again, that's why we wanted to do this podcast as a follow-up is to get into that because most people have been taught this. Um, so dispensationalism as a viewpoint, um, it was created by a guy named John Nelson Darby, who was an Englishman in the late 1800s, 19th century, who was obsessed with, and I don't say that as a bad thing, but he was obsessed with the nation of Israel. Um, and in his mind, God, he was trying to figure out a way kind of theologically to build out a system of the basically the Old Testament promises and how he felt like God had made Old Testament promises to Israel, the nation of Israel, that were yet unfulfilled. Mm-hmm which primarily had to do with them being back in their land, which again was what we talked about last time. So John Nelson Darby was infatuated with this idea. And again, he was a believer and he did a lot of great things. He did a lot of different revival things with D.L. Moody in Chicago and stuff. So very influential figure in the church world. And he held a lot of Bible conferences. Well, since he was kind of obsessed with Israel, he had heard of a woman, charismatic woman in Scotland who had this vision, um, which, what was her name? Margaret. Oh, we had this on here. Thatcher. Uh, not Margaret Thatcher. Um, oh gosh. I had these things underlined already. Um, Margaret McDonald. Yeah. I should have. It was a tie. It was a tie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret McDonald. There you go. Yeah. Um, 18 and 1830 in Scotland. She had this charismatic vision. She had a dream. And in her dream, there was going to be like a secret rapture of the church, that God was going to take away the church before the tribulation. Well, when John Nelson Darby heard this, um, again, he's obsessed with the nation of Israel. He hears about this vision that this woman has. So then he combines these two to make up dispensationalism because in his mind, the way for God to deal with Israel again was to get the church out of the way. And if he got the church out of the way by this secret rapture, 
then God could deal with Israel again. So that's where dispensationalism comes from. And then he takes this nationwide through all these conferences. Yeah, well, really worldwide. Yeah, because he did a lot of conferences in in Europe and in Canada. And so dispensationalism as a, a belief system, the reason why it's called dispensationalism is it refers to different dispensations, which a dispensation is a period of time. And that's just true. That's just the word. Um so what John Nelson Darby did is he literally broke up the history of humanity into different dispensations, and there's seven of them, where you had the dispensation of Adam and Eve, and then you had the fall, and then that, and, and I'm doing these off the top of my head, so I may not give them all correctly, but uh, so you had the Old Testament and the law, and then you had the dispensation of what what he would say now, we have the dispensation of the church age. But then God is going to secretly rapture the church up out of the world, and then that will usher in a the next dispensation, which is the dispensation for Israel, mm-hmm. where God is going to deal with the nation of Israel separately. And this is where, again, the vast majority of people in churches don't understand. I don't say don't understand. Maybe some of them do. But they don't connect the fact that the secret rapture of the church is necessary to get the church out of the way so that God can deal with his first covenant people, which is Israel. Right. The vast majority of people in our church just read and have been taught this and they think, oh, God's going to take us out of here before it gets real bad. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. Right. Um, but they don't understand. So, And I don't blame them. Like, I don't blame anybody for wanting God to do that. Mm-hmm. That's not, who doesn't want God to come rescue us before it gets really bad? Right. I'm fine. I I get that. However, what the vast majority of people don't understand, the only reason why they think that is true is because they've bought into a system called dispensationalism that they've just been taught that also says the reason why God is going to rapture out the church is because he has to in order to deal with Israel again because God has two covenant peoples. And that's the big difference. That's the big difference. And and what we're saying is, and again, the vast majority of scholarship is saying, no, God does not have two covenant people. He doesn't have the nation of Israel and then the church, which is what mm-hmm. we were saying on the last podcast when we were talking about spiritual Israel. And this is where this is where dispensationalism I get it just gets a little strange because here's what John Nelson Darby said. He said that when Jesus came to earth the first time, he came to reestablish the physical nation of Israel. But that failed because the nation of Israel didn't believe in him. Mm-hmm. So then God had to enact plan B, which was okay. I'm going to not deal with the nation of Israel right now. Jesus is here. That failed. So I got to go to plan B, which is I got to create the church. And so I'm going to create the church after, you know, Jesus's resurrection as a, literally the wording is a parentheses of God's plan A. So the church is just like a, the church wasn't the point. The church was like a result of, it was plan B from a failed plan A. God's plan A was Israel, but God's plan B is the church. And so God's dealing with the church right now, 
But here pretty soon, the rapture is going to come. The secret rapture is going to come where God takes the church out of the way, his plan B, so he can get back to what he really wants to do is his plan A. So a question begs, how did they rationalize the inerrancy of scripture, which is what they were trying to get back to yeah. with the character and the attributes of God? If he is perfect, if he is sovereign, then how could he need a plan B? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know how a dispensationalist would answer that question. Uh, and they might answer it from a standpoint of like, well, even though it was his plan B, he knew it was all along. You know, mm -hmm. like he knew that was going to happen. Um, and, and again, the problem with that is, again, John Nelson Darby was obsessed with Israel. And so what I'm saying with people, this whole viewpoint is not based upon rigorous study of the scriptures. It's based upon his obsession with Israel and a charismatic woman's vision. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is based on that. Wow. And... Well, then when you, when you've already decided that that is the truth, then you bring that to the text, then you start, you start, you've already assumed this is what's going to happen. And then you come to the Bible and you try to force that viewpoint onto the Bible, which is called eisegesis instead of exegesis, which is I'm interp, I'm bringing my interpretation to the Bible instead of letting it interpret what I think. For example, um, in the King James Version, which, again, the Schofield Bible was in, the Schofield Bible of itself, the King James Version of itself is a fine translation. Like, it's a word-for-word -word translation. I don't have a problem with the King James Bible. So, again, when we, when we list, when you hear me say this, when I, we reference this, the Schofield Reference Bible, I want people to understand I'm not talking about the King James. I'm talking about Schofield's notes. Right. I'm talking about his commentary. Which are 80% uh, of each page. 80% of so each I'm, page. I'm, I'm looking yeah. at Genesis 3. Genesis 3 takes up uh, about 20% of the page, and then his commentary takes up the rest. Yes. Yeah. So when we're talking about that, we're not talking about the Bible. Um, but for example, Saint, uh, not Saint Corinthians, 2 Timothy 2.15, um, where Paul is talking to Timothy, if you read it in our the translation we use mostly is the ESV. It translates in that verse, rightly handling the word of God right. or the word of truth. Mm -hmm. So Paul was encouraging Timothy as a young preacher, hey, you need to handle the word correctly. Well, the King James version of that says rightly dividing the word of God. Well, John Nelson Darby and, and Schofield interpreted that verse, 2 Corinthians 2.15, rightly dividing as we should divide up human history into dispensations. So again, they already thought that this is what was going to happen. The secret rapture of the church, because God had to deal with the nation of Israel again. So they think that way. Then they come to the Bible and they see a text that says rightly divide. And then Schofield and Darby were like, well, well, we need to divide it up. Right. But that's not what the word means. No, we need to divide it up into dispensations. And so that's why they divided it up into seven different dispensations. But the word in Greek, it actually doesn't mean to cut it up into pieces. It means to cut it straight because it has the word ortho in it, which we've said before. Ortho means straight. That's why we have orthodontist, orthopedist, straight bones, straight teeth. Orthopraxy is what you taught on. 
you know, orthodoxy is straight doctrine. And so literally what Paul was saying there is, is not cut up the word into dispensation, not divide it, but cut it straight. And what he meant by that was teach it correctly. Like you're going to rightly handle it. It means you're just like a, like an orthodontist would straighten a tooth, just like an orthopedist would straighten a bone. Paul was telling Timothy, you better, pre- you better bring the word together straight, you know, uh, teach it correctly, heal it correctly, you know. Um, so the problem with this viewpoint, again, is it starts to interpret everything in the Bible through that. And that is the problem that I don't think most people understand. We have to let the Bible interpret the Bible and and one of the particular problems with dispensationalism is they don't let the Bible interpret the Bible as much as they interpret the Bible through current events mm. because they see things like the book of Revelation as prophecy as literal events that are going to take place. So John Nelson Darby Schofield, again, uh, started prophesying, started started a whole new kind of theological system that said that God was going to deal with the nation of Israel separately mm-hmm. than the church. And so, uh, like we've gotten this question before, uh, I've had somebody ask me, Hey, do you believe in replacement theology? And I will say to them, no, I don't because I don't believe in the premise that it was, it's set on. Cause when someone asks replacement theology, what they're asking is, did the church replace Israel? Because for a dispensationalist person, they don't believe that the church replaces Israel because they think Israel is still a separate, distinct plan of God. People of, they're different. They're two different peoples of God, Israel and the church. And so when we talk about how, like I said this last Sunday, all the Old Testament promises that God made, according to 2 Corinthians 1, are a yes to us, a dispensationalist would say no. A dispensationalist would disagree with my message this last weekend because they would say all the promises of the Old Testament are just for Israel. They are not for the church. The church did not replace Israel. Well, I don't believe the church replaced Israel because I believe that the church is Israel. It always has been. And so the people of God, there's always been one people of God. Uh, which again goes back to what God promised Abraham through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, uh, which goes back to Genesis three. God, God didn't have a plan A and a plan B. It was always plan A. And, and people struggle with this. They say, well, why is Israel the chosen people of God? Which is what we talked about in the last time. Israel wasn't chosen as the only nation to be saved. Israel was chosen to be the nation from which the Messiah would come. Yes. But the Messiah was never just the Jewish Messiah. He is the Messiah of the Jewish people. He is the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the Messiah for all people. Right. He just came from the Jewish people. And now the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, which is what we've talked. That is spiritual Israel. So the church didn't replace Israel. The church is just the fulfillment of Israel. So Israel was always bigger than a one people in one place. And that's the distinction. And that is why when people will ask us as a church or what do you believe? Are you 
pre-tribulation? Are you post-tribulation? Are you mid-tribulation? We reject that even as a premise. Yes. Yeah. And this is what's, and, and again, we're getting technical here. So I hope everybody listening can follow, like, because I want you to understand this. We are, those words, um, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, none of those words were even in biblical languages or, or theolo- theological discussions until John Nelson Darby, until the, the 20th century. Christians, the early church fathers, uh, pastors, you know, from the Reformation to August, no one talked like that. Because a pre-tribulation view, or or let's just say a pre-trib rapture, that language comes from dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. So if I don't believe in dispensationalism, then I don't believe in any of the premises. Right. So we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I'm not pre-trib. I'm not mid-trib. I'm not post-trib. Because I don't believe that, I don't believe in any of the system. I don't, we don't, I don't buy into the theological system of dispensationalism. So therefore I can't give you a, I'm, I don't exist in any of those categories. Yeah. We, we were talking this morning, a comparison would be, um, you know, are, are you a orange wearing Clemson fan or a purple wearing Clemson fan? Yeah. I'm not a Clemson fan. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to wear either <laughs> yeah, one. Not, I would wear both. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I am a fan of Clemson, yes. That's a, but mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like saying, it, it, in order to ask me this question, you're presupposing this question. Or, or you're, so yeah, if, if I'm saying, you're asking which, which color would you wear? Well, I would wear neither because I'm not a fan. That's not my team. Right. So when people say pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, all that stuff, all of that exists within the doctrine of dispensationalism. And you don't find any of that in the Bible. Um, so let's just get into that. Let's just get into these different views. Can, can I ask something before we get there? Yeah. So you've had this question asked of you. Yeah. I've had this question asked of me. How important is that when someone is asking that question based on, hey, I want to go to a church that believes this? Well, again, kind of going back to what we talked about, to some people, that question is very important because to them, what's at stake is the literal translation of the Bible. Got it. Got it. So for some people, if we do not hold to a dispensationalist view of the Bible, they would say we're rejecting the Bible. So to that person, I would say, well, no one believed that before 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. This, again, throughout church history, this is very new. And the only comparison I can make to this, which is not the same, and it's a little crude, but it's the same way that I would talk to Mormons. Right. When Mormons say, well, if you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, then you're not a Latter-day Saint. You're, that's the problem with Mormonism is they believe they're the true church. We are not. We are apostate. They're the true church, which is why they have the Last Testament, which is the Book of Mormon. What I would say no, because I don't agree with the premise on the question. Like, you're not the true church. I mean, you're you're relatively new to the to the block, buddy. Like, you weren't before a couple hundred years ago. Mormonism wasn't a thing, mm-hmm. you know. 
And so therefore, it's not a historical doctrine, and it's completely different than what we find in the Bible. So Mormons are not Christians. Um, they themselves wouldn't have even called themselves Christians, which is a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. We'll have to get into that. Yeah. So yeah, to some people that come to our church and ask this question, for them, biblical inerrancy is at stake. So it's very important, which I recognize that. And you're not calling them apostate? No, I'm not calling them apostate. Okay, I'm not I just, want, them, just no, want to make that clear. No, I'm not calling them not Christian. Um, they're not, uh, that's what we said at the, at the outset. They're mm-hmm. Bible-believing, well-meaning right. Christians. The problem with it, though, is the Bible, again, interpreting the book of Revelation literally, it's literally symbolic. It's a different genre. Mm-hmm. It's apocalyptic literature. It's a letter that's prophecy that's apocalyptic. And so it has more references in it to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament combined. There's over 500 references. So I can't interpret the book of Revelation without the Old Testament. So I have to interpret it with the Old Testament. That is my key to interpreting it, not through current events. I would say that's the problem with most dispensationalists is they read it and they're looking for, okay, this is the dragon. Who's the dragon? It's China. Mm-hmm. They're looking at this. Well, who's this? What's oh, Russia? They're looking at this. Who's that? Oh, it's that. You can't do that. You, you can't interpret it that way because that is a, that is a failure to understand how prophecy is used. Um, and that's interpreting it through current events instead of through the Bible. So let's get into yeah. the different views, the rapture, yeah, why the rapture is taken from particular verses, yeah. and what's really going on there. Yeah, the idea, or the word, let's just go to this, the word rapture. Um, the word rapture in English does not occur in our Bible, um, which sometimes is a defense that people use against dispensations, like, well, it's not even in the Bible which I don't think is a fair assessment because the word Trinity is not in the Bible either, right. but we believe in the Trinity, mm-hmm. um, which God is one in three persons. So the word rapture doesn't occur in the Bible. However, it does come from a concept in first Thessalonians four, where Paul was talking to the church at Thessalonica and he was encouraged. One of the problems with the church in Thessalonica is the, the church thought that those that had died prior to mm-hmm. that, those were, that were already dead, right. that were in Christ, they were somehow going to miss the second coming. Yeah. They were going to miss it. They weren't going to be alive. They weren't going to be able to see it. So that's the answer that Paul, or that's the question Paul's trying to answer. And what he tells them in first Thessalonians four is says, no, when Christ returns, the dead will rise first. They'll be made, a, they'll have new resurrected bodies and then they'll see it because the whole world will see it. It's, um, it's not a secret. It's not a secret. The whole world will see it. There'll be a loud trumpet blast. The whole world will see the second coming, which is called the parousia of Christ. Um, so the answer that Paul is trying, the question that Paul is trying to answer there is not about a secret rapture, but it's about the dead in Christ will see it. But the phrase where he says um, that we will be caught up together with the Lord. That Greek word 
when you take it into Latin, is where we get the word rapture from. So the word rapture is the Latin version of that, our word in the Bible, caught up. So Paul does say there will be a rapture of the church. Um, so the concept is biblical. And I do believe, we do believe, again, historically, the church believes that when Jesus returns, the people of God, those that were dead in Christ and those that are alive at the same moment, they will be caught up with Jesus in the air because Jesus is returning um, with heaven. However, what it does not mean is that we will be caught up with Jesus in the air in a secret way. And then we will be taken back to heaven. And then that will kick off this seven-year period of tribulation. That is not what Paul means there. Um, because the idea of the word when it says we're going to meet him in the air, is it's used in other Greek literature to describe like either a, a conquering army going out to conquer lands. And when they come back, people would go out and meet the army. And then they would come back into the city because the people were now sharing in the victory. And it's also used to describe when a, when a king is coming, mm -hmm. the people of the city would send out a delegation to meet the king, and then they would walk right back into the city with the king. They wouldn't meet the king and then go off to someplace else. Again, that's the problem with the secret rapture of the church. And so this is where... Again, we have to be careful. I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying, we're not saying we don't believe in a rapture. What, what I am saying is we don't believe in a secret rapture of the church where God will take the church out before this seven-year period of tribulation, which would be a pre-trib rapture because God needs to get the church out of the way so that he can deal with the people of Israel again. Mm -hmm. We're saying, I don't believe in that. So then that begs the question, well, what about the tribulation? Well, and I've said this many times, I believe we're in the tribulation now. The tribulation started the moment Jesus rose again. It started at that time. It started and really started at Pentecost um, when the Holy Spirit came and empowered. So to interpret the book of Revelation as this series of events that will happen at the end of time is to say that the book of Revelation only applies to people at the end of time. Doesn't apply to anybody else because it's only referencing events at the end of the time is a failure to understand how the book was used. Again, another problem with the dispensational view is once they buy into the secret rapture, based on verses like 1 Thessalonians 4, which, again, contextually is not referring. It is referring to Jesus return, returning, and it is referring to the church meeting him in the air, but we will meet him in the air and then come right back down. To we'll, share in the victory. To share in the victory, in the new heaven and the new earth, mm -hmm. in our resurrected bodies. That will all happen at one time. There's, it's not secret and then institutes seven years, and then he comes back, which then institutes a thousand literal year reign of Christ and all these like end time events. Again, we don't believe that because how, how dispensations would say, well, in the book of revelation, the first three chapters, 
John and Jesus is talking to the churches, the seven churches. Then at the beginning of chapter four of Revelation, it says John was caught up into heaven. He had, that's when he goes to heaven, um, spiritually speaking and sees all these visions. Well, again, the dispensationalist interprets that as the rapture of the church. So they interpret that literally, um, that, which is funny to me because nowhere in there in Rome in revelation four, does John say that church is caught up? He says, I was caught up. So we're supposed to interpret that literally. Well, the most literal interpretation is that's what happened with John, but then they interpret that symbolically that that symbolically refers to the church. Mm-hmm. And the argument is between revelation chapter four and revelation chapter 19, the church is not mentioned. And it's not, it's not, but what they see is what's mentioned in chapters one, two, and three. So the reason why it's not mentioned in chapters four through 19, because it's not here. So they see revelation saying that before the tribulation comes, the church will be raptured up just like John was. And then that'll kick off this series of events that will happen that revelation describes between chapter four and chapter 19 of which the church is not involved in any of that. Then you don't see it again until chapter 20 when Jesus comes back. Again, that is a failure to understand uh, how to read the book because the first three chapters are written to seven churches. And the next chapters, verses 4 through 19, are describing to those seven churches what's going to happen to them. So yes, the church isn't mentioned in verse chapters 4 through 19, because it was talked about in the first three. Right. The seven churches were talked about. And John even says in chapter one, he says of the tribulation of which he is a part of. So John even gives you a clue at the beginning of Revelation when he says, we are in the tribulation right now. I mean, think about it. John was tarred and feathered and sent to exile on Patmos. Is that not tribulation? Right. <laughs> That's trouble, right? Which, again, what dispensationists will say was, oh, hold on. But God says we weren't destined for wrath. And so we're not destined for wrath. That means the church can't be here mm. during the tribulation, to which I would say wrath and tribulation are two different things. Mm-hmm. It is correct. We are not destined for wrath. Right. But wrath is the eternal punishment of God. Yes. And again, contextually, if you go back to Ephesians that we've been talking through, by nature, Ephesians 2 says, we were children of wrath. Mm-hmm. So by being children of wrath, that means we're, we were children of eternal destruction. So wrath and tribulation are two different things. Wrath is the eternal punishment of God. Tribulation is what we experience here on earth. And this is what really bothers me when when people have that viewpoint is it's really a shallow viewpoint or short-sighted viewpoint because they think it's a very American, North American viewpoint is what I'm trying to say. Christians all over the world right now are, are experiencing tribulation. Yes. There are Christians killed every day for their beliefs. So how in the world can we say that God has not destined us for tribulation 
when people are being martyred every day. Mm. That's a tribulation. Now, we're not being martyred here in America. We are being persecuted, uh, and we will get persecuted more and more and more. So to me, it's just a really kind of like uh, neat way of saying, well, I don't want to go through the tribulation, and I don't think God destines us for the tribulation. And it's insinuating that somehow God doesn't love us if we go through that. Um, when there's Christians all over the world going through it right now. Um, so it's, it's, it's a viewpoint that was popularized. Again, most people believe in a secret rapture because they don't want to go through the tribulation, Mm -hmm. which I understand, but they don't understand that the whole reason why John Nelson Darby needed the rapture of the church is so that God could deal with Israel separately. And to say that God has two covenant peoples, he has the nation of Israel and he has the church, is a complete misunderstanding of the Bible. For instance, you even mentioned this in Romans 9, 10, 11. There's only one tree that we're grafted into. Mm-hmm. Yes, the people of God in the beginning were the Jewish people, but they were cut off from their unbelief. And now Gentiles are grafted into that tree. So Gentiles are grafted in by faith, and Paul says Jewish people can be grafted back into it as well if they believe. So there's one tree that we're grafted into. There's not a Jewish Jewish tree and a Gentile tree. There's not two. There's not two. And this is where this is where dispensationalism gets super weird, is because they think they would still say God that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But somehow, in some way, the nation of Israel is going to be saved, or God has a separate plan for the nation of Israel because he elected them, because he chose them. When Paul clearly says, if they don't believe, they're cut off. Right. And only a remnant of them will be saved. Um, so the vast majority of people in our churches who believe in a secret rapture, again, don't understand that that is necessary for God to deal with Israel in the seven-year tribulation. And Paul makes it very clear in First Thessalonians, this is going to be a very visible return. Yes, there is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, that articulates a secret rapture, a secret of Jesus just taking out his believers. And, and honestly, this is... This is as a pastor, this is where it really bothers me. And I just heard a pastor recently in the last few weeks, we talked about this, say this, who articulates this view, who is a dispensationalist. He's got charts and graphs and timelines, the whole thing, which again is just a failure of understanding prophecy. Um, But he scares people. Like he literally said, in the rapture of the church, you're going to have people in the secret rapture. You're going to have a Christian pilot that's flying the plane where with unchristians on the plane and that Christian who's the pilot is going to be raptured and taken away. And then that plane is going to crash and people on it are going to die because all the Christians were gone. And he said this two weeks ago at a, at a church up the street. Yes. Not far from here. And that's just crazy. I mean, there's nowhere in the Bible that depicts Again, dispensationists would disagree with me. 
because they would say, well, it's Revelation, it's the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, the 70 weeks, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and th- and that they have to do kind of like this theological gymnastics to bring all these verses together to try to insinuate that. Um, which again is, I don't believe Daniel 9 is, I don't believe the 70 weeks and the, the seven years and the 70th week and all that. I don't think that's referring to a literal seven years at the end of time. And again, the vast majority of church fathers in church history didn't either. This is a brand new system. Um, and so what bothers me is, is it's really the secret rapture of the church is used as a fear tactic to people saying, you don't want to be left behind. That's why the left behind here. You don't want to be left behind. If you are left behind, Jesus is going to rapture out the church and you can be left here during the seven year tribulation. And but, you, yeah. But the misunderstanding of the left behind is comes out of Matthew 24. I believe it is where Jesus says, and this is the thing that's funny to me. Jesus says it will be, the end will be like in the days of Noah. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? In the days of Noah, we know Noah built an ark and God simultaneously in one act saved people and judged people. You were either in the ark and you got saved or you were outside of the ark and you, you got punished, you got judged. So we interpret that now through Christ. Jesus is the ark. So those of us that are in Jesus will be saved. But what Jesus says there, he says, one will be taken and another left. What's ironic to me, dispensationalists look at that view and say, that verse and say, oh, the ones that are taken are those that are taken to the secret rapture. Those that are left are those that are left behind. Well, that's the exact opposite view of what Jesus was actually saying. What Jesus was saying, again, you have to, the interpretive principle of that verse is what happened in the days of Noah. Those that were left are actually those that were saved, not those that were left behind. Those that were taken were those that were taken away by the flood. Mm -hmm. They were taken away into judgment. So the exact opposite Trans the exact opposite viewpoint of that verse, where dispensationists would view, oh, would say the ones that are left behind are those that are here. Those that are taken are those that are taken to Jesus. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Those that are left are those that are saved. Those that are taken are those that are judged. Because again, Jesus's return will be very, when the flood happened, the whole world saw it. It wasn't secret. It was very public. And that's exactly what will happen at the second return of Christ. It will be very public. Jesus will come. We will go up. The dead and right, the dead in Christ will rise. We will go up to Jesus and then we'll come right back down. So we are the ones that are left. The ones that are mm-hmm. in the ark, the ones that are saved are the ones that are left. So if you think about the ark or the flood as the interpretive principle of which we interpret the end times, it's perfect, which is why Jesus said it. Because what happened? It took Noah about a hundred years to build that ark, right? Mm -hmm. The Bible doesn't tell specifically the time, but it's about a hundred years. So as Noah's building the ark, so let's interpret that ark as the church. As we are building the church, the world, the iniquity of the world is increasing, increasing, increasing. So the church is getting the the church is getting built, 
the ark is getting built. And at the same time, the kingdoms of the earth are getting built. They're getting more evil and more evil and more evil until it hits a crescendo. When Jesus returns, we'll go into the ark. We'll go into Christ, into the new heaven and new earth. We'll be saved. They'll be judged. There's nothing in the storyline of the ark or the flood that interprets that, that it, there's going to be a secret thing mm-hmm. that happens right. before the flood for God to get this people out of the way so that he can deal with this people. And then this people are going to be in the new heaven and new earth for seven years while the tribulation's happening. And then they're going to come back again. It just starts to get weird. Yeah. Um, Acts one eleven. the angels told the disciples, this same Jesus yeah. who was taken up from you into heaven, that was public. Public. You saw it. <laughs> will so come in like manner. The same way. As you saw him go into heaven. Yeah. So he left visibly and he will come back visibly. He will return visibly. Now, let's, let's drill down into this a little bit. Because, again, we're talking about the role of Israel here. Um, what I do want people to understand is the nation of Israel being back in their land is obviously a part of end time events. We're not saying that's not because it happened. I mean, obviously they're back in the land because God wanted them back in the land. There's no doubt about Mm -hmm. that. And, and it will, there will be more wars and the Antichrist will come. So again, I want to be clear when we look at the, uh, the prophecy of the book of Revelation, the best way to interpret chapters four through chapter 19 is it is describing events that are going to happen. And remember, this was written in 90 AD. Um, so this was written almost 2000 years ago. Um, and it's described. So when you're talking about the seven bowls, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, all those kind of things, the Bible uses numbers symbolically to talk about complete. The seven's the number of completeness. So all those events we do not believe are just, they're not describing literal chronological events that will happen one right after the other, which is how dispensationalists uh, interpret that, but they are describing cyclical events that will happen throughout human history before Jesus returns. So again, we believe that we are in the end times right now. We believe we are in the tribulation right now. Also, we believe we are in the millennium right now. Um, I do not believe in a, like, again, Jesus is going to secretly rapture the church it's going to institute this seven-year period of tribulation. Then Jesus will come back with the church, and then he will institute his thousand-year millennial reign. And then after that, he'll lose Satan one last time. And then we have the final cont- I don't. I don't believe that, which again, most scholars don't. And this is why we've already said it's a new thing. Like it just came on the scene mm-hmm. the last 150 years. But when you're trying to force the book of Revelation into these literal things, then you're forced to interpret all these signs by current world events. When the Bible just doesn't do that, 
let's take the thousand years. The Bible uses the word a thousand years to just talk about a long period of time. It's not literal. It's not literally a thousand years. For example, the Bible says a day is like a thousand years to Mm -hmm. the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. He's just saying an indefinite amount of time. Mm -hmm. He's just saying not literally a thousand years is a day. What he's saying is, what is a day to God? It's like a thousand years to him. Mm. It time is no deal to God. He's outside of it. So when Jesus rose again, two things happened simultaneously. The millennial reign of Christ happened. It's it's now. The kingdom of God broke in. So the kingdom of God is here on the earth already in the church, which is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. One people of God. And Christ is reigning now, but it's not complete yet. This is the already not yet tension. So we're in the millennial reign of Christ right now. The second thing that happened is the tribulation, the great tribulation, as people call it. So that kicked off this, this period of time or as this dispensation, this period of time called the church age. Um, where we're in the millennial reign of Christ. Think about it. Satan has been released. He has power right now. Um, But when Jesus returns, all the prophetic things that the book of Revelation says, when he returns, will happen. Jesus will cast the devil, the serpent, the beast, the Antichrist. That 666, that's the demonic trinity. And so it's not necessarily referring to three separate people as much as it is saying the devil tries to copy God, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will bring heaven with him and he will, we will meet him in the air. A new heaven, a new earth will be created and we'll come right back down victorious because the beast has been slain. Amen. Um, so all of that will happen, but I just want our church to understand we won't be raptured out secretly before it, I don't believe the, the tribulation is seven years, nor do I believe the millennium is literally a thousand years. Um, both of those are describing periods of time that we are currently in right now. Now that freaks people out. Yeah. It freaks people out to think, Oh, we're in the tribulation. But I mean, look around. You, you can't not think that you can't. I mean, what do you think? And again, the weird thing is, from a dispensational view is, well, the church will be raptured out. And then in those seven years of tribulation, well, there's still people that are saved during that seven years. So how does that happen? How does that happen? If, if Jesus raptured out his church, how, how does he still save people? Again, there's just some, you have to do some kind of weird, you know, and again, I'm, I keep saying weird. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying it's strange, you know, but we can understand. And this goes back to what we said in the beginning. We can understand if, if this new view on things came about 150 years ago, dispensationalism, um, Darby, the Schofield Reference Bible, and these notes are in that Schofield Reference Bible, and this was widespread, worldwide spread through conferences, through this Bible, yeah. and through church history, and through teachings, whether it was in Sunday school or you know from the pulpit, yeah. we can understand how, how people would get here. Yeah, I understand it. That's what I yeah. said. I understand how people get here. 
that's that's postulating a view that God has two covenant people, well, then Israel becomes a nation again in 1948. Mm -hmm. Now there's all this conflict that's happening. So people thought, oh my gosh, he was right. Like Schofield was right. John Nelson Darby was right. God has two covenant people. Look at what he's doing with Israel. Here's the problem with that, though. Dispensationalists also believe that there will be a third temple rebuilt, Mm -hmm. and then temple sacrifices will be reintroduced again. So you need a red heifer for that, all these things. And Texas A&M is supposedly developing this red heifer. I'm not saying they're not, but I'm just saying, like, people start looking at all these things. And, well, the third temple is not going to be rebuilt. We are the third temple. Jesus is the third temple. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. He said, tear this temple down, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Right. What was he talking about? Himself. He was talking about his body. And what's his body? The church. So, again, we do not believe. We're, here's, what, here's what bothers me sometimes with pastors and people who believe this view. They love Israel not because they really love Israel. Not because they really love the Jewish people, mm. but Israel is necessary for their end times prophecy. Yeah, let's let's look at that from this Schofield Bible. Yeah, now, this was a gift to me, and I'm very grateful that somebody gifted it to yeah, me. Yeah, and it wasn't until this week, until we started talking about this, that I started to dig into this a little bit. Yeah. So Genesis twelve three, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So let's talk about that in the context of the commentary as I try to put my glasses on underneath my headphones. And this is what it says. This is the commentary in the Schofield Bible. So 1909, uh, this is, uh, again, a a newer version. Mm -hmm. It's the, Mm -hmm. the new Schofield reference edition, 1984, I believe. Promises to the Gentiles, I will bless them that bless thee. This was the warning literally fulfilled in the history of Israel's persecutions. Mm -hmm. It has invariably fared ill, didn't go well, with the people who have persecuted the Jew. It has gone well with those who have protected him. For a nation to commit the sin of anti-Semitism brings inevitable judgment. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that there are some who are pro-Israel, so there would not be judgment against them. Exactly. They love Israel because they don't want to be cursed. Mm -hmm. They don't want God to curse them if they hate Israel. So therefore, it's really not a love for Israel as much as it is, well, I just don't want God to hate me. It's not that I love you. Mm -hmm. I just don't want God to hate me. So I'm going to love you so that God doesn't hate me. And again, (laughs) we should love Israel. We should love the Jewish people because because, because <laughs> Jesus was Jewish and Jesus loves the Jewish people just like Paul was Jewish. Paul loves the Jewish people. And he said, Romans 9, I would cut off myself in order for my kinsmen in the flesh to be saved. Which is amazing. Yes. So we should feel that way. But there's a lot of people, like I heard a pastor say just a few weeks ago, now that Israel is back in the land, God's prophetic time clock started. Um, 
Well, no. <laughs> so that, does that mean when Israel wasn't in the land from 70 AD until 1948, it, it was stopped? Right. No. God's prophetic time clock started the moment Jesus rose from the dead. That's right. And it, then through the Pentecost of the church and through the church expanding from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, this is what's weird about it. Clearly, Paul articulates, as we just said, there's one people of God. Now there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's one people of God. Well, why in the world would God need to take the church out of the way so he could deal with his people? Mm-hmm. He's dealing with them mm-hmm. through believing in Jesus. So there's a lot of people that love Israel simply because it benefits them or simply because they somehow see that Israel is necessary for Jesus to return. So therefore, it's more about themselves and how it benefits them. And that's my problem with it. Now, again, I'm not saying that Israel being in the land is not necessary for Jesus to return. Clearly it is because they're there. Mm-hmm. Like I said, right. sovereignly, God put them back in the land in 1948. That doesn't happen if God doesn't want it to happen. Sure. So clearly God wanted it to happen. And clearly the nation of Israel is going to continue to face, there will never be a two-state solution. There will never be peace in Israel, ever. Ever. There will, there will only be false peace that's promised by antichrists and, and the beast and all those images that we get in the book of Revelation. So clearly, we are in the tribulation now. Where are we in the tribulation? I don't know. And anybody who tells you that they do know, you should not listen to them because we don't know. Jesus himself said, the father said that. I don't know. The angels don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, how in the world can this dude know? Right. You know? Right. Um, and, and clearly, I think, I mean, we're closer now than what we were, you know, when Jesus was here. So, yeah, it's closer, but I don't know where. Um, and this is the part that really bothers me. People get obsessed over this stuff. But the one thing that Jesus said must happen before he returns is this gospel of the kingdom must go everywhere. Yeah. So they, they get obsessed over end times, but they don't want to share their faith with unbelievers. And, and that, is, that is typical uh, and quintessential for those who are so stuck on one thing. Yeah. And, and, and I always ask that question. If somebody wants to talk about, you know, what they're holding so tightly to, yeah, you know, after after I let them talk, because mm-hmm. I think that's important, also, of course, is to say, hey, so, you know, you sharing the gospel with your neighbor? Yeah. Well, no, I haven't done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it points to what you just said. Yeah, and again, that's the problem I think with a lot of this. And and one of the best books, and we both have it printed, part of it printed out here, is a book called Mystery Explained. It's probably one of the easiest, simplest books that I have found. Mystery Explained, A Simple Guide to Revelation by a guy named David Campbell. And it's a solid book, very easy to read, very, I mean, just takes the whole thing and kind of breaks it down in a very simple format that will help you kind of understand some of the stuff that we've been talking about Um and and helps you understand that the book of Revelation is not a book that we should be scared about reading. It is a book written for every church. 
in every generation to read and understand what the Bible is saying is two things are going to happen. It's going to get worse and Jesus is going to come back. We can take that to the bank. And again, my other favorite illustration that the Bible uses, Jesus talks about the times of Noah. Then he also talks about birth pains. And then Paul picks this up in Romans 8 when he talks about birth pains. Mm -hmm. These are the beginning of birth pains. Well, if you think about it, it's pregnancy, right? So a woman gets pregnant and then that starts the clock, right? The moment of conception starts the clock. And then it's typically nine months. And so in that nine month period, two things are going to happen. It's going to get worse for her mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and a baby's going to be born. Right. You know, ideally, right. Obviously things can happen, but so if you use that metaphor, the conception, the birth of the church happened post-resurrection at Pentecost, two things started at that moment. The church is going to grow just like a baby grows from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the Mm -hmm. ends of the earth. This gospel will be proclaimed. And all along the way, we're going to have tribulation. So tribulation and expansion of the kingdom go together. And so those will happen. Well, clearly, when you get closer to the end, the pain increases, Mm -hmm. right? And so, I mean, I'm not a woman, haven't given birth. I can't give birth, but I was in the room when my wife gave birth. Those last, that last two or three days were horrible for Lindsay. Her body was wrecked. I mean, we joke with Jackson all the time because he's a big dude. He like wrecked her body, you know, (laughs) it looked like a tiger just mauled her skin, you know? Well, the same thing's going to happen, you know, like we are we are, the world is going to go through this period of intense pain and it's only going to get worse. And we're, everything that happens right now is birth pains of a sign of what's to come. It will get worse. I hate to help. I hate to tell people this, but I would rather prepare them for it than promise them they won't be here. Mm. I'd rather prepare our church for pain that in the same way, I'd rather prepare a woman for the pain that's coming sure. in, in child, it's coming. That's part of shepherding. Part of shepherding. The pain is coming. The tribulation is coming. It is here now, and it only will get worse. So the bad thing is, whether it's a literal seven years or maybe, you know, maybe the last time will be seven. I don't know. But I don't think the church is going to be mm-hmm. raptured out for it. Because the church is not going to be raptured out because God doesn't need to rapture the church out in order to deal with Israel. He's dealing with Israel now. Um, and obviously Israel, as, as we said last time, there's the nation of Israel and then there's the spiritual Israel. So God clearly brought the nation of Israel back and he's bringing these events together and he's doing all of that as war- the whole book of Revelation is meant to be a warning. It's getting worse. Repent. Believe in Jesus. Mm. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Right. Jesus is coming back. It is getting worse. Wake up. That's why Jesus says in chapters one through three, he who has a here, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What the Spirit is saying to the churches is, it's getting worse. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about 2020 and COVID and everything that happened through. If that didn't wake people up, 
What will? Right. So I think we need to quit forcing this viewpoint onto the text. Quit trying to interpret everything that happens in Israel. Quit thinking that Gog and Magog that Ezekiel 38 and 39 references. Quit trying to say that's China and Russia and these. Maybe it is. I don't know. But the, the point is not what country is it. The point is people are going to be attacked. The people of God are going to be attacked. And we got to prepare for that. Mm-hmm. But Jesus will come and will save us. Yes. And there's one people. One people. So, the church. So if, if somebody would ask someone in our church, hey, what does Revolution Church believe? Or do they believe in a dispensationalist theology? The term would be covenant theology. Yeah. That's what we would believe? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we would believe, we definitely wouldn't believe in dispensational mm-hmm. theology. Again, it's so new on the church scene, and it's just not, it's not a scholarly um, viewpoint. And again, I don't mean that in any way to disparage. It's just not what, in academia, it's just dismissed. Because again, it was based mm-hmm. on a prophetic vision and this one guy's interpretation. How did seminaries begin teaching this? Well, Primarily, again, so you had you had um, you had John Nelson Darby, you had Schofield, then you had Lewis Berry Schaefer, who created Dallas Theological Seminary. Early twenties, and that was in the forties. Forties, okay, uh, late forties in Texas, in you know close to my hometown, and so Dallas Theological Seminary became like the scholarly school where dispensationalists went through, and a lot of famous preachers. And Bible teachers went to school there a lot. I mean, tons, you know, um, where, and I don't know if you had that or I, I mean, I could just read a list of the names and it's quite remarkable. Uh, John, Uh, John Walver, Walver, Walverd, uh, Charles Ryrie, mm -hmm. Dwight Pentecost. How how do you get a name? How do you get a name like that? I know. That's pretty (laughs) cool. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of guys went there and a lot of pastors went there. I I could rattle off names right now that all of our listeners would know. I won't because I don't. Want, I'm not trying to right. like disparage. Um. And so now Dallas Theological Seminary has gone away from this now. Like mm-hmm. they are not classically dispensationalist. They they've they've moved in the direction of more covenant theology mm-hmm. now, which I think is good. But what happened in the last century is yeah. So you had this Bible. The common people reading this Bible, everybody believing that this was going to happen. The nation of Israel becomes a nation again. This seminary was created. Every A lot of pastors that were pastoring people started going to school here, were trained in this viewpoint of thinking. And so that's where it started getting its kind of academic feet. But then after that clearly started moving away from it. Like DTS doesn't even believe in this stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. Like they've gone away from that. There's some obviously still there that believe in softer versions of it. Mm -hmm. Like for example, they may believe, they may not believe in a secret rapture of the church, but they believe in a literal thousand year millennium that comes after Christ returns, which again, we can agree to disagree on that. I don't understand why that's necessary. It doesn't really make sense. That's why I think we would say we're, again, people say you pre-trib, post-trib. Well, we don't agree with any of that. We believe we're in the tribulation now and we're in the millennial reign of Christ now. 
Well, this was a, a, a bit to chew on. Yeah. Uh, so we want you to listen to this and then, you know, bring this up at your Thanksgiving dinner table. I think, <laughs> I think that would be totally appropriate. If, if politics weren't enough, bring up the secret rapture. Yeah. Pray for the Jewish people. Pray for Israel. Um, in mm-hmm. any way you can come against anti-Semitism, uh, come against any uh, oppression of any person any any racism and you know what we what we talked about today it is it's a lot and uh, you're more than welcome to send all of your correspondence to info yes (laughs) at revolution.church yeah we will probably it's i don't know i'm not a prophet so i can't predict the future which other prophets weren't necessarily doing either but um my assumption is we may like after the last podcast, we got a lot of good mm-hmm. from this one. We may not because again, <laughs> there may be people in our church and, and please hear me say this as you, some of your pastors, we love you. Yes. And we are not saying um, that you are unbiblical. If you believe in a secret rapture, we're not saying you're crazy what we are saying, though, is there's just not a lot of biblical evidence for it, and um, and it's a system that was perpetuated for for the particular reason of God has to get the church out of the way to deal with Israel again, and and vast majority of people don't know that. So I want you to understand that's why it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So we should love the nation of Israel. Not because that, because they need to be there for these end time things to take place. We should love the nation of Israel because God loves them, mm-hmm. and we should pray for them because God wants us to pray for them, and we should pray that they should come to faith in Jesus. Because if they don't, they'll be cut off like the rest of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important, and that's why we wanted to articulate it this way, coming off of the conversation about national and spiritual Israel talk about how we love the nation of Israel. We love the Jewish people because they're now they are our brothers and sisters in Christ if they believe. And so just like we love Arab people or Asian people, if they are now in Christ, we love them. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to understand God has one people, one plan. It has been his plan all the way through of time. And if that is the case, then we as the church, out of Ephesians 2, we cannot have hostility towards any group. That's right. Um, Jewish people in particular, like you said with anti-Semitism, and then those that may hate the Jewish people, we don't just hate them. Yep. We love them. Yes. Um, Jesus doesn't give us a choice. No. We love them, and we want them to be a part of the family of God as well. Amen. Amen. Uh, the sound you heard, uh, Pastor Jason almost knocked over his Stanley Cup, yeah. <laughs> which would have set off some seismic activity, I'm sure. That is a it monster. Is. That is. Uh, yeah, this is one of the uh, plethora of Stanley Cups that we have at my house. How, how many do you think you had? Did, did you have to take a <sighs> shelf out and raise the shelf so that would so the yes, Stanley Cups would fit we in? We did. <laughs> I, I would we imagine. Did. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the shelf we have for coffee cups is now no more. It's two shelves for Stanley Cups. Wow. Yeah. I asked Lindsay, how many of these do we need? And she always says, one more. So. <laughs> mm. 
Well, uh, last night at one of our giver celebration dinners, mm-hmm. uh, a gentleman came up to me and he said, I love the podcast. Do not stop with the names at the end. Oh, okay. so, so for a transcript of this show, if you're listening to it on Spotify or on Apple, Apple Music or whatever, Apple Podcasts, you have to write down everything we said. Yeah. But if you're watching it on YouTube, there is a transcript. All right. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know if it's translated perfectly. Gotcha. Uh, but there is a transcript. Um, our producer for the show is Brian Damaro. Our technician today, Neon Keon Sadiji. Our key grip is Jakob Pushchikovsky. <laughs> our head of doctrine and theology is theologian. Our chief evangelist is salvation. Our backsliding prevention officer is lukewarm. Our director of Swedish witnessing is Bjorn again. Bjorn. Um, he thought it was funny. Andy thinks it's funny. His wife okay. doesn't think it's funny. Yeah. Uh, I think it's hysterical. <laughs> our expert on Russian eschatology, speaking of uh, end times, Pitoff Hell. Yes. Our director of holiness is mortification. Our staff counselor, he's very busy right now. Less moody. Very busy right now. <laughs> Less moody. Our uh, nativity coordinator from France, her name is Beth Lechem. Lechem. <laughs> yes. Our co-pastors of Plagues, Manny Locusts, and Lance Boyles. Uh, our Irish eschatology professor, Marco the Beast. Marco the Beast. You, you, oh, you, we didn't even get into that. No, no. That's for another podcast. We'll have to get into that. Um, unless you want to add on. We're at 93 minutes. We're, yeah. we're, over, an, we're over an hour and a half today. We'll come back to that. Because we didn't even talk about the plagues and all that. <laughs> oh, I love the... I, I'm a fan. Yeah. Not, not a fan of the plagues. Yeah. But I, you know, growing up with Passover, yeah. the dipping... We had to dip our little finger in wine and remember each plague. It was... Yeah. It was weird as, yeah. a, as a kid growing up. Uh, the director of the Doctrine of Election, I am chosen. I am chosen. Our sabbatical director helped you out with your sabbatical trip long. Mm-hmm. Um, where else are we here? Oh, our director of marriage studies from Romania. Her name is Shizma Betterhoff. <laughs> director of marriage studies, Shizma Betterhoff. And the new one today, our resident Trinitarian. Our resident Trinitarian. Trinitarian? director of the trinity okay yes yeah yes um holly spirit holly spirit, holly spirit. <laughs> <laughs> she works over in that office over yeah, there yeah all right uh i don't know about y'all but pastor jason and i need one of these right now we're gonna we're gonna do what trust god and take a nap yep, yep. I'm, I'm tired yeah <laughs> see you guys